Hebrews 6, verses 16 through 19. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to that hope that lies before us. This hope is strong and a trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. It's a powerful thing to have that confidence and that faith. Now, David has brought the Ark of the Covenant back, and on the way, he had issues. And when he had those issues, let me put that back because I didn't, want to, didn't mean to hit it that quick. When he brought it back, he had the issues of they didn't bring it back the right way the first time. And so God struck one of the men that were, that were leading the ark. And it really upset David. Well, he went back and found out, well, gosh, no wonder why God did this. We didn't listen to what he wanted. We didn't go to his word to find out how God wanted us to do this. So he goes there, and then he's able to bring the ark back with an even greater procession than what he had before, with a lot more freedom, knowing that God was going to bless it and not be a curse. He set himself up and he discarded his royal robes and he put on a linen ephod and he was just dancing and singing and everything to his full potential. And this upset Michael. She looked at this and she was so discouraged at him doing this because he had discarded his royal robes and was just like everybody else. He put on the same clothes they had on and he was just having the most wonderful time right along with them. And she despised him in her heart because of this. Well, David blessed all the people. He set all the sacrifices, had a great feast because the ark was back where it belonged amongst the people. And so when he went home, she, had, she met him and literally had with sarcasm dripping from her mouth. And the scholars are pretty sure that it was just not her and him. They're pretty sure that she did this stuff in front of others. 2 Samuel 6.20. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. If this would have happened in our day and age, uh, most of the folks that have believe in this great women's lib and women are equal to men and all this other stuff, if my wife, if Amy would have come up to me and said this to me, I might have blasted her right on the spot and said, how dare you? You just write the spirit of the day, especially if she did it in front of others. But David, David did not let this bother him. Instead, David looks at her and gives her a reply that demonstrated just where his heart is. And that's what we see in 2 Samuel 6, verses 21 and 22. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all the house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this. 
and will be humble in my own sight. But as far as the maid servants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. I brought up that this would be no different than seeing the Queen of England out partying amongst the, the, the people, dressed as one of them, having a wonderful time. Some other people might look at it and go, I can't believe you did that. This is so beneath you. But you know what? The people and the subjects of England would probably just love her even more than they already do. David wasn't concerned about being embarrassed. He told her, if you think that this is embarrassing, you ain't seen nothing yet. If I need to, I will get even worse and more humble before God. He would take and strip his pride even more because he wanted nothing to stand even close to any of the honor and glory that God was due. He is a created being, and God is the creator. He actually understood the key concept of worship. And that key concept is one who is worshiping is not seeking the glorification and the approval of others. It is between him and God. Just like us, we're not here to perform for each other. We're not here to get anyone's approval of how we worship, how we pray, how we praise God. It's between us and God Almighty. And he's the only one that deserves that glory and honor. I could care less how people view me and how I worship God. If he believed that his pride was getting in the way, he'd strip it all away. And he did not care what anyone else thought. That's what we looked at last week. This week I was going to skip by this and press on up around Bathsheba, but I realized that I couldn't do that just yet. Because, you know, when it comes right down to it, David wanted to do something for more for God. He wanted to build him a temple. And that's where we're going to cover this week in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And then it's really interesting when you look at, the, at this section here, a lot of this stuff in 2 Samuel compares a lot with uh, First and Second Chronicles. It gives you a lot more detail into what's going on. So we're going to press right on now with 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within a tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Well, it's quite possible that David had rest from all those enemies that he's going to be battling in the next chapter. This is to show how important this subject was. So here he is. The king of Israel has built himself an expensive home out of cedar. And all the people in Israel and in Jerusalem, they've got houses that are really nice too, that meets that perfect middle class. They're quite suitable. And David starts to think to himself, God has nothing as nice as what we have. I really think I need to do something more for God. It bothered David greatly about this. I live in this beautiful home and God lives in a tent. Well, Psalm 132, verses 4 and 5. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids 
until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Without saying specific words of telling Nathan, I'm going to do this. Nathan, I think I want to do this. What do you think? He doesn't, he just starts talking out loud. And Nathan overhears him. When Israel was in the wilderness, uh, 400 years prior, God told Moses, build me this tabernacle. And it was to very specific specifications. And it was a good thing because they traveled everywhere. But now they're in Jerusalem. It's more of a permanent situation. They're in the promised land and the Ark of the Covenant is here. So David says, gosh, I need to replace this. I need to give God something more permanent also. Now, so the tent of meeting, i.e. the tabernacle, is perfectly suited to be here. It's not going to have to move anymore. We don't have to travel. And so David's thinking out loud, and Nathan overhears him, and Nathan tells him, go and do what all is in your heart. Whatever you're thinking about, just go do it. It's a good thing. Well, what was in David's heart? What was in his mind and his thought processes? What can I do for God? Now, see, God's blessed him in everything that he's done. God's protected him. God's taken such really good care of him. And he wants to know, what more can I do? 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 through 7. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a, in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded the shepherd, my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? <clears throat> Excuse me. Nathan's response to David when he was thinking out loud and said, go do what you need to do, it's an awesome thing, was a little presumptuous. <laughs> Nathan, he answered according to human judgment and his own human heart. And it just made common sense to him. Well, why not? You're the king, God's blessed you, and this would be a good thing. But this was before he heard from the Lord. Before God came and said, hey, well, I'm out. What was the prophet supposed to do and what was the role of the prophet? Their primary responsibility in those days was to give the word of the Lord to the people in all the different circumstances that they were in. They were to go to God and pray, to ask for guidance. They were supposed to do all these things. They were God's megaphone in declaring whatever God commanded them to say. So what he should have said to David was, okay, you know, David, that sounds like a pretty good idea. But wait a second, why don't we stop and make sure this is what God wants? Why don't you and I go to prayer? Or why don't you go to prayer and ask God? And instead, he gives an immediate answer. You go do it, David. It's a good thing. You know, we should always go to God before we take on a monumental task for him on our own. We may think that something is really cool, that we should do for God, but you know what? God may not want you to do it. He might have something else in mind, someone else to do it. Or he might have it in mind and saying, well, you know, you might have this really good idea, but it's, it's okay, don't, you don't have to do that. 
We should always go to God before we do anything. First Chronicles 17, 4. Go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. God knows everything, and he already knew that David was going to do this. David was going to try and honor him by building him a permanent home. And it's all from a human standard. What would God's home really look like? What's it like in heaven? I know, Rick, you covered this not that long ago. But is it a permanent structure? I don't know. I don't quite think so. Nothing's, nothing can be built that holds God in. If you can hold God in a structure, you put him in a box. And he's more powerful than that. David wanted to do more than what God commanded. And it really makes me think about what I see a lot nowadays in a lot of different Christian lives and what I hear and what I observe. And I'm sure you may have done the same thing. You've seen and heard these things yourselves. Maybe you even have some of these thought processes. And what that thought process is, is what are the bare minimums that I can do and still please God? Does that sound outlandish? Does it sound really kind of bizarre? Well, think about this one for just a moment. For a lot of Christians, it's all about minimum amounts of nothing more than sin management. What can I do to manage my sin? What can I do about that? And uh, a little bit of moral indifference thrown in. It's all about minimizing the visibility of sin in some of the Christians' minds. And instead of going out and trying to encourage people to get to know God and know Christ much better. Yep, 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 I see, you know, I do that sin, but it's okay because I'm a Christian. It's minimized. And that's not how we're supposed to be. You think that this is anything new to us today? Well, let me tell you, the early church also struggled with this concept as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, the common religious motto among the Corinthian church was the bare minimum mentality of all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want because it's lawful because I have, I have now I know Jesus. And I'm sure it kind of played out a little bit like this. I am free in Christ to do what I want. It's my right to live the way I want to. But you know, according to Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We may know Christ, but we just don't get to do as we darn well please. We don't get the opportunity to say, you know what? I'm forgiven for all this other stuff. I can do whatever I like. And you know what? God will forgive me if I ask for forgiveness. That's not how we're supposed to live our lives. They were using their freedom for Christ as a license to sin instead of an avenue for sanctification. And Paul was saying, this is not how we're supposed to live. And it's the same thing for us. This is not how the example we're supposed to give others. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to live for Christ. 
We just don't get to do like we used to. Well, for some of you, maybe not, but because some of you, you know, came to know Christ when you were a little bitty. I didn't have to be till later on in life. But still, it's not how we're supposed to live. David said, I want to build God in a temple. And God said, no. But what did David do when that happened? Did David get all despondent and say, oh, well, fine, I'll just sit here and twiddle my thumbs? No. We're told in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 2 through 9, that he gathered all the materials for Solomon to be able to do it. Do we do that type of stuff for our own children? Do we gather everything together that they're going to need to be successful? That they're going to need to understand Christ and how to worship Christ and God? Do we set them in place? Theologian Frederick Myers stated, if you cannot have what you hoped, do not sit down in despair and allow your energies to your life to run to waste, but arise and gird yourself to help others achieve. If you may not build, you may gather materials for him that shall. And if you may not go down the mine, you can hold the ropes. And that's an important key. There are a lot of times that we want to do something for God and we're basically give the indications and show, no, this is not your task that I have for you. But that doesn't mean we should go around moping, oh, God doesn't want me to do this. No, it just means someone else is going to do it, so start putting the stuff together for it. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9. Now therefore, thus shall, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I command the judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. God literally took David from a shepherd boy to the king of Israel. And boy, was that one heck of a ride. He experienced so much stuff in his short time of life that it would probably drive most of us nuts. God promises David, I protected you and I've got other things I want for you to do. He promised David two things. First, he promised David that he's going he's to reign. He would establish a permanent and secure Israel. They're going to be safe. They're going to be sound. They're not going to have any worries from their enemies. God promised this first because he knew that David, being a godly shepherd, would be more concerned about these people. Aren't we supposed to be more concerned about our brother as his sisters out in the world? For those that don't know Christ, aren't we supposed to be more concerned about them? Second, God promised David that he would build him a house in the sense of establishing a dynasty of uh, a dynasty for the house of David. This was an enduring legacy for David long after his death. You see, David, 
you're not going to live forever on this earth, but I'm going to make sure that your family is on that throne. David wanted to build God a temple, and God said, well, thank you, David, but no thank you. I have other plans in mind. It's not going to be you. It's going to be someone else. But you know what? Let me build you a house instead. David could have sat there and, and said, oh, man, look at God. He gives, I'm so great, he gives me gifts. He could have that attitude, but he doesn't. He has the attitude of God is so great. He even gives me things. And there's a difference. He knew David's intent, just like us. When we want to do things for God and God tells us no, God still accepts that as an offering because of the intent. He accepts the intent. You wanted to do it, even though he says no. And he blesses it. He blesses you for it. In these cases, God receives the intention as the gift. We're going to kick over 1 Chronicles 22, verses 8 through 10. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build me a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. God said no to David's offer because, well, gosh, David was a man of war. And I have to take these circumstances and chronicles where they fill in more of the detail. And I have to think that he was actually informed of the reason why. Well, God, I don't understand. Why can't I build you this house? I thought I would be the one to build you the temple. You've done all these great things for me and you've, you've, you've blessed me. I just want to give you more. But he didn't get hurt feelings. He didn't sit there and mope. He accepted what God told him. Why? Because it's what God wants. It's not what we want. When we want to honor God, do we mess it up? Is it messed up when God tells us how he wants to be honored and we do it that way? No. We're following God's word. We're being obedient to his commands. 2 Samuel 17, verses 12 through 17. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be the, a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God specifically promised a hereditary monarchy for the house of David. 
And it was important that he repeated this because this is going to be the first time that a son of a king in Israel is going to replace him. Jonathan and none of the other brothers replaced Saul as king overall. Sure, man tried to appoint one of Saul's sons to do it, and that was an utter failure because it's not what God wanted. But God is promising your son will replace you. This great promise that God made to David had only a future fulfillment in it. David wasn't around to really witness and enjoy all of this, just like Moses, just like Abraham, just like all the other fathers, the forefathers. They weren't alive when all these promises were, were fulfilled. And David, if he had just had one of those, uh, well, what's in it for me right now, God? None of this would have been enjoyable. None of this would have been anything worth a plug nickel and meaning anything to him. David's not going to build the house or the temple for God. His descendant will. But you know, a lot of prophecy is foretold in these verses that we just saw. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and it will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him in the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Did, Dan, did uh, uh, David's family sit on that throne for the rest of their time? His, his uh, group of guys, they, they only sat on that throne for about four centuries before they were removed because of what we find in First and Second Kings, where each king did more evil than the one previously in the eyes of the Lord. Each of these great promises was partially fulfilled in Solomon. Just partially. David's son was the successor to the throne. The descendant of David will enjoy a special relationship with God. He saw peace during his entire reign. Was he perfect? Oh no, Solomon sinned big time. But did God crush him and remove him off the throne like he did Saul? Well, no. Instead, God chastened him and said, hey, chastise, no, you did wrong, but you know what? You're still mine. God's mercy never departed from Solomon, even though he sinned. And Solomon built that beautiful big temple, the one that most later on in life after it was destroyed, so many people mourn. Oh, we remember the other temple and how great and magnificent it was compared to what we have now. The last promise God gave, God's promise, David, that the reign of his dynasty would last forever. What do we know what it tells us in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2? Then a shoot will spring from the son of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Solomon was not the person that these prophecies were referring to. There was a more in-depth meaning behind these prophecies. And we all know what that was and what they were concerning. Just a few quick ones here. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And I'll kick in just one last one here in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom shall know no The one that God that he was talking about in the previous promises. God was talking about Jesus. They were completely fulfilled in him. Jesus does reign and will reign on David's throne forever. The Father's mercies never departed from Jesus, even when he was made sin for us. He still loved him. Jesus is building the Father a magnificent house in the sense that we are God's temple. And you know that the church is God's new house. Let's kind of break this one down, this statement down of Scripture for just a few moments. Jesus is building the Father a magnificent house according to Hebrews 3, verses 3 through 6. For he is counted worthy of more glory than Moses by so much as the builder of one of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Jesus is building that, that big old house. We're part of that house. Jesus is building the Father a magnificent house in the sense that we are God's temple, as it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through to God through Jesus Christ. Take it a step further again. Jesus is building the Father of magnificent house in the sense that we are God's temple and the church is God's new house. And that's according to Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling 
where God lives by his spirit. All of that out of that one session of promises to David when he was told, you are not to build me my temple. Isn't that really cool? We're part of the kingdom of God. We are part of his temple. We were built up by Christ. The cornerstone. The church is God's house. And the house needs to be rocking. The house needs to be out in the world witnessing. The house needs to be out trying to bring more in. Creating more brothers and sisters. David was so happy of hearing all of this news that the rest of the chapter he was given this he was, uh, uh, had a great prayer for this gift that God promised him. Now, I'm not going to cover the rest of this chapter, but I'm going to speak about it. I'm going to speak about it. When David received this spectacular gift, he didn't think it made him any greater. See how important I am? God is going to bless me this way. No. His attitude was literally what I mentioned earlier. God is so great and God is so good, he even gives me gifts. He gave you the gift of salvation. Did you deserve it? Probably not. Actually, I'm pretty sure the answer will be no. We should receive salvation and every blessing with that same attitude. I don't deserve it, but God gives it anyways. God's refle uh, giving reflects the greatness of the giver, not the receiver. God is great. God is merciful. God wants us in today's times to pray to him everywhere, wherever we are, under all circumstances. He wants to hear from us. He wants to give that, get that praise. When we do this, we need to put God first and foremost with no distractions. I don't know about you, but if I pray and there's a lot of noise or stuff around me, I can't pray. I'm distracted. My prayer is worthless, even to me. I'm voicing nothing to God. Even when I drive, that's usually when I do a lot of my praying is when I'm driving. The radio's off. I probably shouldn't be praying while I'm driving, but I do because it's a very quiet time. I get to pray to God when I'm doing work around the school first thing in the morning when it's just me. I get to talk to God and it's the most wonderful time. It's probably why I, up, I would say 99.95% of the time I have really good days and it just drives everybody nuts. You're always having a good day. Of course I am. I'm talking to God. I'm doing what I think God wants me to do. He hasn't told me no yet. And David, it was a little different for him. You see, he didn't sit there after, after Nathan gave him all this really cool news. He didn't stand right there in front of Nathan and start praying. He wouldn't, didn't have anybody else around when he started praying. What did he do? He went into where the Ark of the Covenant was. He went inside the tent by himself. Now, he didn't go into the Holy of Holies. That would have been a, a bad thing because he's not a high priest. 
And you just can't go in there willy-nilly even if you're the king. But he still went someplace where he was by himself. And David's prayer boldly asked God to do what he promised. He boldly asked it. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. You see, when you've got the confidence to boldly go before God and ask it in earnest and it's in his will, do you think he's going to say no? It's going to happen in his time, maybe not yours, but it will happen. His prayer was not a passive prayer. It was not one of those, well, God, do whatever you want to do. I really don't care one way or the other. No, it was not that kind of prayer. And it was not an arrogant prayer that said, well, God, let me tell you what to do. No, his prayer was, well, God, I know you promised this and I know you're going to fulfill it. It was bold. It was the kind of prayer that claims God's promise. Just because God promised it, though, doesn't mean that we possess it, does it? If we don't claim it in faith, God's promise is left unclaimed. Sure, God can tell you, here's what it is. Uh, this is going to happen. I'm going to give you what you asked for. But if you don't believe it, it's not going to happen. It just won't. Psalm 119, verse 60. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. This was David's foundation of faith, and it should be our foundation of faith as well. He knew that God was God, and every single word that he spoke was true. He never lies. He knew that God could be trusted. God fulfilled everything he's promised. You can go back in our, in our scriptures and you can see God promised it here and he fulfilled it here. He promised it here. It was done here. Promise fulfilled. Promise fulfilled. It's almost like what we hear nowadays. Promises made. Promises kept. God makes promises and God keeps them. Even when God indicates something that you want to do is not what he had planned for you, do you pray and give thanks to him and give him honor? Praising God and thanking him for what he has done in our lives can help us think about whatever is true, which Paul says will help us have peace. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. By dwelling on these things, it can change our hearts and our lives as we pay closer attention to what God does for us on a daily basis. If God says no to something I really want to do for him, Instead of moping, I should understand and look at what he's done 
and dwell on those, it makes me such a better person. Let's go to prayer.